I'm Alan Winson, co-host of Bar Crawl Radio. For our 13th podcast, we talked with two very different writers of crime. Michael Wilson wrote the New York Times crime scene column for six years, and Alexandra Marzano-Lesnovich wrote The Fact of a Body, a memoir about the killing of a boy by a pedophile, and the author's experiences with sexual abuse by a close family member. It's a riveting read, both a lesson in the law and insights into human behavior, and we highly recommend it. We had such a great time talking with these two writers that we went over our self-imposed 20-minute conversation limit, and the editor, that's me, could not decide what to cut out, so he included it all. Lazy sound editor. We also broke up the Bar Crawl Radio 13 podcast into two acts. So, first, Michael Smith from the New York Times, and then Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich, author of The Fact of a Body. And here we go. Well, it's almost we summer in the that. city, and we're sitting here at Gebhard's Bar, Culture Bar, on West 72nd Street on the Upper West Side, and we are Bar Crawl Radio. Yeah. Today we'll be having conversations with Michael Wilson of the New York Times, writer of the crime scene column and Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich, author of The Fact of a Body. It's an autobiograph, autobi, it's an audio, what, what, what word am I trying to say? Autobiographical? Well, it's a memoir. A memoir, it's a memoir. It's a memoir, a, memoir, a novel, a history crime. of a murder, about pedophilia, it's in a whole lot of other stuff. And we'll be right back. Okay, okay, so we're here with uh, my co-host Rebecca McCain and, mm-hmm. and Alina Larson. Alina, what are you drinking there? Yeah, I was, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I'm like, it has mighty things are the last two of the three words, and I <laughs> really just glass. go by the name, so yeah. it's delicious. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading, I'm, I'm eating, reading. I've been drinking, drinking this too long, yeah. <laughs> Shake Chocolate Port, uh, it, it comes from uh, Michigan, I think they said it's really too good and it has mm. a little bit of a kick as you can hear <laughs> yeah and you're not drinking your, your vodka and tonic no I'm not I'm drinking a Keller Weiss uh, beer a Bavarian style wheat beer from Sierra Nevada yeah yeah well I know what I wanted to talk about maybe Alina wants to talk about okay. well I, wa- I want to talk about something and, and here, here here's a beginning Okay, so, so, so you all it's know, a bit you know of a that. Nightmare. Yeah, this this story is called the lost bus driver. Yes. All right. Uh, so that's where the wheels on the bus go round and round. Um, you and I and and my sister were coming back from New York, going to my sister's 
home. That's in, right. In Barbara Rockville. was on the bus with us. Right. That's on May, right. May 11th. We left at 4.30. We didn't want to take the next bus, which was 6.30. Okay, so I think you have to back up a little bit and say that we go and visit your sister who lives in Rockville, Maryland, just outside of Washington, yeah, D.C. we go all the time. She's my we sister. We go all the time to visit her, and family down there gets we get together for holidays etc and we take a bus right we take a bus we don't and like I'm, I'm to not drive gonna, i'm not gonna name the name of the bus because it, i'm gonna be complaining about it yeah. but I'll, I'll give you a hint it starts with vam and ends with oos bus <laughs> so i'm not saying the don't name don't say who it is it ends with oos bus and starts with vam so i'm, I'm not gonna say the name but of we it. do love them so but so we're we, a little bit ticked off right now yeah a little ticked off so mm. 4 30 the bus leaves on time. It always leaves on time. Yes. Right? Next yes. bus is 6.30. We don't want to take leaves that on one. Time. We want to get... We wanted to get... And they usually arrive ahead of schedule. Ahead of time They're or great, four hours later. Four hours later. there. So I go to sleep as soon as the bus leaves 39th Street and... and um, what is it? Well, um, for your first nap. Yeah, for my first nap. And an hour later, we're in the Lincoln Tunnel. So right away. Yeah. Right? <laughs> an hour later. We got there. Lincoln Tunnel. But that's usual, right? It, it happens right. sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it it um, takes a while just to escape the city. About two hours later, the bus driver pulls into a rest stop. We always think we're going to get off. We don't. He just goes to the bathroom. Right. Because, now wait, because this bus company, sometimes they don't put it on the schedule, but sometimes the drivers will pull in to a rest stop and they'll say, you have 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And they say, be back here on time, you know, or I'm leaving without you or whatever, right? Yeah. So no, they you say assume that. he pulls into a rest stop. Okay. Which is nice because we'd rather use the facilities at the rest stop. It's, they're pretty good. Maryland, um, you know, has, and Delaware, they have really nice uh, rest stops. New Jersey has good rest stops, stops. So go on, honey. Yeah. So, Alina, have you ever taken VAM, Oos bus? I'm not saying I it. have not. Okay. I've taken, taken Bolt and... I've taken Olt bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we're not naming names because it's We're not like, naming names, yeah. you're right. But okay. no, I have not. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to try an, another one. Uh, besides the Usbus Vam, which I'm saying backwards. So so we pull up the first time. Then he get he gets on the phone, the driver's on the phone and he's talking, 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 and, and we can hear him talking, I don't know what he's saying. And so about an hour later Well uh, wait. So maybe we're we're about four hours into the trip now because there's a lot of traffic. But wait, I did hear what he was saying. Oh. I could hear what he was saying. Okay. And a lot of people did. He was talking to another driver. He right. was talking to, and he, he said something about, you know, let the dispatcher know, okay, well, I'm here at this rest stop, well, I'll, I'll drive on, because he was talking about the fact that he couldn't, to the other driver, that he could only drive for another 40 minutes, he mm. said. Mm -hmm. So he, so you, no, go ahead. Now right. I've had so, that issue, mm -hmm. yeah. Right, so, so we're, we're, we're four hours into the trip, which is a four-hour trip, but it was, there was a, lot of, a lot of traffic and all, okay, so it's going to take five hours. So he, he, he stops the bus. We pull into the Maryland House, which is a premier rest stop on I-95. It's I been renovated recently. It is really nice. Very you nice. could live there. Um, it's so <laughs> Highly clean. recommend. It's so lighting, and it's great. So we, he, he pulls off, and uh, we think he's going to open the door. He's going to let us out. This is the second rest stop, too. Second rest stop. Okay. And instead of opening the door, he gets up. He walks about a third of the way down the bus, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, I've got to tell you that I can only drive for 10 hours. But this is after you asked him to, honey. You don't remember. You went up to him. He was talking on the phone again. And he was talking to the people oh, in the yeah. front and seat. I said, and I you said, said, what's up, man? Yeah, you said, excuse me, Mr. Bus Driver. Can but we get off? What's going on? The rest of us would like to know what's going on. You have right. a, you know, a, a, a bus full of I, people I, I, who I, I are... Don't, I don't take yeah. credit for that. Yeah. So, yeah. so he, get, he, he gets up. He talks. He says, uh, I can only drive for 10 minutes. There are another driver will be here in two minutes. Two minutes. Please, yeah. just sit down, two relax, minutes. 
Two minutes. He emphasized that any number of times. I know times. he did. He emphasized it for about two minutes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and then and then he gets he off the bus. Then he well he sits down and then he gets off. No, no, he sits down. Okay. Fifteen minutes later, one of the other passengers gets off and gets up and says, I, "I need to go off the bus." He opens the door, and gradually, all seventy of us. <laughs> we, well. Walk out the door. We kind of go out the door. Not at the same time, you know, in and we out. We kind of, yeah, yeah. Out, say, oh, it's, we're, I guess we're going to get and off the get off. Okay, but and, yeah, he doesn't like this when I interrupt him. But okay, I, I just I have this whole story all set up. I know, but I'm, I'm just interjecting. Okay, I'm interjecting. The thing is, is that when these bus drivers, I think I already said this, they say you can get off for 15 minutes, and he didn't say that to us. No. So we huh. didn't know. He had no, no news. Um, you know, I wanted a coke. Uh, other people wanted to use the facilities, and we nobody knew. We were all kind of just so, wandering so when around. So when, right. when she asked for the Coke, it's like I got off the bus, and I ran to the convenience store. I just ran. Of you course. Know? And it's like I was real proud of myself because I was able to run there, buy it, I run know. back. In time. You made in it. In time. And we, didn't and we still didn't leave. And he's off talking on the phone. I, I, I met this young lady who's in real estate, wants to be an actress. We're all kind of talking to each other. We're becoming, we're becoming acquainted. Swapping it's life a very, stories. It's a very New York scene. Right. We're, and I call up Vamoose and I say, what the F is going on? Oh, I'm sorry. Good for and you. Moose the bus vam. And I then the driver <laughs> disappeared. Yeah, he, he literally was, disappeared oh, for a time. His, his, his bags were there. And then Becky said, I could drive a bus. <laughs> Why don't I get Because she drove a bus once like two feet. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. So, so she said, I could I'm, drive a bus. I'm confident. We can get a little closer. No problem. Right. So, so um, an hour later... We're now five hours into this oh. trip. This yeah. bus driver yeah. comes up, and he's pissed. The new driver the finally new driver. arrived. Oh, he said, finally arrived. Okay. Get on the so bus. So we were there. That two minute was at, at, le- at least an hour. Get on the bus, he says. He gets oh. on the bus. And then there was a guy missing. And then, well, he said, oh. he said, it's like, is everybody here? And you hear this meek voice in the back go, no, not everybody is here. He says, well, I'm, I, I, I can't go unless everybody's here. It's like, it's like, I'm not going to go look for it. Like I, I rode three hours to get here. You can't get back on the bus? Uh, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, can't, sir. I can't leave. I can't leave right now. I drove three hours to get here. And it's like, we're, we're going. It's like, well, we've been you? standing around. So it's like. And we're being berated by we're, this. We're berating by, by, this, by this new driver. And it's like, we just want to get going. And um, so we arrived in Bethesda six hours oh. for a four-hour trip. As we arrived, the 6.30 bus came up right, came behind, right us. In behind us. And, and um, <laughs> as we got off, this community of you know, distraught Van Usbus um, yeah. people, we were all saying goodbye to each other. I said goodbye to the real estate lady who wants to be an actress. And we kind of blended together with the 6.30 bus. And we all went kind off of our on ways. Our own direction. And it kind of reminded me of kind of what it is to be at a bar. It's like we develop these quick communities. Yeah. We yeah, get to learn, meet true. this guy next to us. He's yeah. like, becomes our best buddy. <laughs> and then we just blend into the scene. So anyway, yeah. I called up, I called up for Moose Bus today. Good. And I wanted to complain. Yeah. And so I'm going to, I'm going to play you what, um, what, what, what happened. Oh, nice. Arlene speaking. How can I help you? Yes. Yeah, hello, Arlene. Uh, I'd like to speak with a supervisor, please. And what is this regarding? I'm a, uh, a local podcaster, uh, Upper West Side podcaster. And uh, I recently had a uh, problem with the moose, and we're going to be talking about it on the podcast that we're recording today. And I just wanted to get a response, if possible, from uh, someone at the moose. Okay, one moment, okay? Okay. What's your name? Alan Winson. Wait one moment. I'll see if someone's on, okay? Oh, thank you. No problem. Travel to the Big Apple in comfort and style with the moose bus. 
We've been connecting Maryland, Virginia, and New York City since 2004, transporting over 6,500 passengers every week in our spacious, air-conditioned coaches. Okay, we're going to skip ahead a little bit here. Hello, sir? Yes? I do apologize there. I'm not available at the moment. I can take your number and have... No, I I, I I would need a response now because we go on air in about an hour. So no no one can uh, speak with me for just uh, a minute. I just wanted to. I just um, well, they're not available right now. That's why there's no one in the office at the moment. Ah, there's no one there. Okay, I was told they'd be there after twelve, and so here I am. Okay, so there's really no one there I can talk to that could respond to uh, my complaint. I mean, I can take your number and try have someone give you a call back. All right. Well, I I'll be in the studio for about another half hour. Okay, no problem. Okay, thank you. If someone get back in the next half hour, that'd be great. Half hour, I got you. And okay. no Bye-bye. one, no one ever, no one ever got back to me. They didn't get back to me when I called that day. They didn't get back to me when I called the next day. I called a couple days later, and then I called now, and I've not heard anything. I think you have to write a letter from now. From the Moose Bus, okay, everybody. All right. uh, having said that, hmm. we do really still like the oh, company. Oh yeah, we do. We do. We yeah. take them often. They've we love gold their gold bus. bus. It's really nice. It's, it's really a little expensive more expensive, too. but you get these big wide seats. That's and right. It's like you're, you you're, you're you a taking a bus water. in first class. That's gotcha. Right. And if you and can take the abuse from really the driver, you know, if yeah. you can take the abuse from the driver, then it's it's really kind of nice. They could they could use some customer service right. Uh, right. training, I think. Yeah. So there you go. Um, you know, you wanted to talk about sounds people make. Mm-hmm. Did you did you want to talk about that? Mm, yeah. All right. All right. Uh-huh. Um, well, I just think it's funny that we also express ourselves with words, but there are a lot of sounds that people make to and, communicate, and you can and you know what they mean, like "huh." I guess that is kind of word. They, they do spell it H U H, but you could just go. Mm. Hmm? Mm. Huh? Ah. <laughs> so we we made a recording of sounds that we make when we communicate. Here it is. Um. <gasps> huh? The um um. Sounds we make when we communicate without words. Do, do you have any examples, Alina? I think you no, guys no, you can't covered use words. them all. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those are good. You have to answer without And I any feel words. like putting it to music really feels like it could be some kind of avant-garde uh, piece. That's, that's Maybe me. you guys have that's a new me calling all over. there. <laughs> it Mr. It, it Mr. Avant-garde. Where's Laurie Anderson? <laughs> it's a little bit like from the '50s, right? You know, in the you know. One of those darkened rooms where everybody's wearing black. Exactly. Yeah. Beat poets here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was great. So right. what's happening in your life? Anything you want to share with us? What is happening? Um, well, you know, we had uh, people from gun control activist uh, groups on yes. a few months ago. Yes, yes. And one of them has uh, needed to step down, and I am now one of the co-leaders of the Brady campaign. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, so my goodness. One of the people we uh, talked with? Yeah. 
Shannon. Mm-hmm. Shannon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, okay. yeah. So, um, you know, it's exciting and a little scary. And, um, but I think, you know, we have a good team of leaders. And so um, I think it's going to be a fun, a fun challenge. I saw there yeah. was a new effort to um, get young people involved in the campaign. Yeah. What's that called? I got a... Um, I got something this, you know, on my phone. The, um. Right. Well, they've been having this uh, beginning of June, uh, March, um, to begin um, Gun Violence Prevention Month. And so I participated in that with Moms Demand Action. But I think because of Parkland, they're trying to get youth involved, too. So right. I think it's called Youth Over Guns. Is this um, a national campaign? National. This is, is going to be a national. March? Yes. So this is um, right. Exactly. This is a national campaign. And what date is it going to be? It the March? is June second, which is a which is a Saturday, Saturday, and it begins in Brooklyn and marches over the Brooklyn Bridge, uh-huh. ending in Manhattan. And they always have a ton of great speakers. And is there a, re- a registration for the? Nope. You can just come if you go on any of the websites of any of the big groups. It has all the information. And what groups are involved? Every Town, Moms Demand Action, Brady Campaign. Um, those are the big three, I would say. Okay. But yeah, all the information is on there. So definitely come and yeah, yeah. we got to do pick this. up some interviews. Yeah, we got to do this. We've been to all the marches so far. So. That's right, all the gun yeah. marches. Well, thank you, Alina. Larson, yeah, yeah. Thanks. and that thanks for getting us these guests you got us for the show. Great they were job. so fascinating, High weren't five. they? Well, they're not fascinating because it haven't happened yet. Right. It hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> so now everyone knows Wait. that we're recording oh. this after the interview. I imagine they will be. <laughs> yes, exactly. Today we'll be having conversations with Michael Wilson of the New York Times, writer of the Crime Scene column, and Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich, author of The Fact of a Body. And this is Bar Crawl Radio. Coming to you from Gebhard's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street. Becky, you want to say something else? Someone said that we should do marriage counseling on the show, and I think we should. I think we should give a tip. What's your tip? I think we're doing fine. Give a tip. Give a tip. Give a tip. Tell your wife you, you love her every day. And don't expect your husband to read your mind. Thank you. You're and, we, and we'll be right back. <laughs> We're really excited to have Michael Wilson with us. He is a New York Times reporter, and from 2011 to 2017, he wrote the crime scene column. He's been with the New York Times since 2002, and uh, we know he writes for other pages on the Times, uh, the New York page, national, international, the arts page. And we're so happy to welcome this New York Times reporter to Bar Crawl Radio, Michael Wilson. Mike Wilson. I'm going to call you Mike. Please it do. Thank you very down. much. It's so wonderful to, uh, to have you here. Great to be here. Thank um, you. Yes, welcome. We, we, we feel honored. I want to talk to you later about you know, the New York Times and working there and all, but uh, let's, let's just start right at the top, the, the central topic here. What was the crime scene column that you wrote from 2011 to 2017? What was it? It was an idea of uh, the Metro editor at the time, Carolyn Ryan, said, what if we had a column about crime. And uh, why not? I said, well, it sounds great. She said, good, like you're, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, what were you doing you at think? that time? 
Uh, I was general assignment reporter with a with a lot of police reporting in my background at the Times. Right. Been, there's a uh, there's a pol- there's a a bureau of reporters at one police plaza. It's a place called the, is known as the Shack in shorthand because it used to be a shack two generations ago next to police headquarters. Now mm-hmm. it's offices in police headquarters, and I used to work in there. Uh, so I I left the shack, was back in the newsroom, and. Carolyn had this idea for a crime column. I said, you know, I'd like to, to read and to write a column that looked at individual crimes of the whole spectrum, not, you know, the, a homicide every week or a, a big dramatic uh, scary crime every week. Sometimes it could be a pickpocket or uh, I didn't know much about fortune tellers then. I would go on to write a lot about fortune tellers and that, that sort of thing. So, so, so her idea wasn't necessarily what it was. You, well, what you came up with. Right. You came up with this thing, the crime scene, which we're going to talk about, and we'll read some from it. Right. Which is kind of unique and really wonderful and really New York, New York City. It was neat. It was a, it, and at the end of the day, it was a story. It was a column about people, right, about New Yorkers. And it, I, I tried to not only talk to victims of crime, but also people in jail who'd been accused of crimes and get their side of things. And sometimes right. these people, you go to visit them in, in jail, they don't expect you. And I'm surprised how often they sort of say, well, you know, what do you want now? And they, they kind of lay it all out there, you know, so. That's amazing. Yeah. And, or, you know, talk to the police, talk to different witnesses. So it was a neat, it, it ran every uh, Monday for several years. Right. And, uh, uh, it, you know, the, the pressure of that weekly deadline, it, you know, if you didn't have it quite perfect, it almost turned out better because you focus more attention on an uh, interesting side of it instead of the things that you were missing, if that right. makes any sense. It, it, it is well-shaped. I mean, there is, there is the beginning line, and, and it kind of goes and it flows, and, and there's people in it. I just want to read the description that was, I think, early on. I don't know if it, it followed through. A weekly column that explores the rich landscape of crime in the city and the characters on both sides of the law. Well, there it is. Right, there, there you go. Why did it stop? Uh, just uh, an ambition to do longer things. Um, oh, it was your decision? It was a mutual decision. I, you know, I love doing it, but it's like when they say, hey, why don't you do more, more uh, expansive, ambitious things, along with stories like this anyway, then uh, you know, it's an offer you can't refuse. Right, right. Uh, when it when it did finally end in 2017, you got several very positive comments. I don't know if you remember that. I'm just going to read just a couple. This is from Mike Johnson, because you don't know Mike. I do not know Mike. Okay. Your stories had the same quote, you can't make this stuff up ring of authenticity that I used to hear at the precinct after an eventful night shift. But you told them with more compassion and tenderness than my fellow cops, or I dared reveal. Yeah. I will miss crime scene but look forward to reading more of your, from your new assignments. Finney writes, I'll miss crime scene. A lot of times it was sort of a high-toned, quote, knuckleheads in the news. <laughs> I don't think the New York Times is a better place for its loss. And uh, one more, John Kerr, not the, not the actor, I assume. Um, Thank you, Michael, for your unique, humanistic crime scene columns over the years. The crime statistics we hear rattled off in 10 seconds by TV anchors became reasons to pause and reflect in your writing. I shall miss the column and salute you. And again, many thanks, John. Well, thank you. These are yeah. great. Yeah, well, I, I'm now going to read it because they're just so, they're, they're, they're so much uh, fun. 
When we uh, were getting ready to start this recording, you started telling us where you found, found these stories. Uh, how did you come upon these interesting... Uh, yeah. Wherever I could. I mean, police blotters, um, just the police, the police themselves, you know, announce, like, hey, we need the public's assistance in finding uh, so-and-so. And it might be a, a story that would, it might not merit a regular news story, but it would catch my eye because of the the neighborhood or because of the pattern of crimes that this person seems to be linked to throwing a brick through restaurant windows in the West Village, you know, that, that turned into a column. Yeah. What's a police bladder? Uh, uh, just a, um, a summary of crimes in the last week. That they send to the newsrooms. You go and visit the precincts and, and sort of look at them or, or someone sits down and looks at them and kind of reads pertinent, you know, interesting ones to you. It's a precinct by precinct Thing. So you would just you know say, when you see them a lot, you see them in the in the uh, like the, the free weeklies in town. Yeah, like yeah. if you're trying to see a police blotter, go to John Jay College the Library. They've got them going back to oh wow the 1800s, I think. Oh, that I might mean, be interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it is, it I is. Bet. It's all yeah. handwritten and, and that kind of thing. You know what occurs to me as you were talking about these yours were not news stories. News stories to me, especially local news stories about crime and drugs and all, they seem all kind of. Blah, 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 the same. Right. You kind of got into something else. Well, what I had was this wonderful freedom to spend a couple of days looking for, you know, people impacted by this particular event that otherwise you would kind of just write from your desk uh, uh, after a, a phone conversation with uh, the public affairs office at the police department, you know. Right. I got to And go. very impersonal, very, I mean, yeah, the, I mean the news story, it's, it's like you're not getting into it right meeting like you, the people involved in almost like we used to say like almost any crime will make a great story if you if you just get out there and get to the right people. look at all the podcasts on crime right crime yeah, and murder exactly. I, yeah, mean, I mean yeah but but it's it's not about the actual this is what happened it's about the people it's those the wonderful voices that you hear in these podcasts yeah. and, and i'm listening to one now the uh, the one out of ireland um west cork it's called oh i listened to that i'm i'm Three quarters through, chapter ten or something. It's amazing. I I look forward to doing the dishes at the end of the day at night. So right, can, right, right, right. And I'll pile them up. I'll like make them dirtier. And you, <laughs> so and you put can, you put the book so up in front of you. No, it's a it's a podcast. Oh, the so podcast. Okay. A, you okay. have okay. to listen right. to it, Alan. Yeah, it's great. Those right. those Irish voices, and it's brilliantly produced. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know the, the music. It's, a, and a, the, it's an audible production. It is. It yeah, is. Yeah. L later in the podcast, we're going to be talking to Alexandria. Mar Marvano. Marzano. Marzano. Uh, we'll have to ask her how to, yeah. Marzano how to pronounce the name. Who wrote The Fact of the Body, name. which is that kind of deeply personal. Yeah, very. Look that I think Do you, you, know the you book? touch on. I, I, I know of it, yeah. yeah I haven't yeah. been able to finish it. And you were able to put these together in, I counted like 800 to 900 words. Yes, actually, the, uh, the yeah. standard length is supposed to be 750. But I always no, you, you always that. seem yeah, to be over because I, 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 I was right. looking at each one of the ones. And we're going to look know, the, at a few the geography of the column literally changed um, in recent years. A column used to be a column of print down literally. the side of the paper. Yeah, right. A couple and then inches. The size of the paper changed since I've been at the Times. Right. Huh. You, right. You go back 15 years ago, it was this big. Right. And now it's kind uh, of this big. Mike, huh. Mike is holding his hands about shoulder length. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and then now then they're coming closer and closer together. And now, if you can picture my hands holding a phone, that is, of course, how so many. People exactly. read it and uh, or a pot or an iPod, I iPad right. like Alan. Yeah. I mean, the, the the whole thing of a column inch is is uh, doesn't mean anything anymore. It, it still does to the yeah. to people who are who are putting out the print paper every day. But my 
column was not laid out like a column. It was often laid out at the top of the page or at the bottom of the page in a different shape. So you could, it, it could accommodate some extra words. There were weeks where I had to cut 100 words out of it, and I did. I want to get back to some of the stories that, that you wrote specifically, but let's, let's go further back and then and, and come, come back to your, to your writing. You graduated from Loyola yes. in New Orleans. Yes. Are you from? You don't sound like you're from New Orleans. No, I grew up in Buffalo. Uh, oh, but my, we how'd moved you, south. How'd you get to Laola? We went to Tallahassee. My my family moved there when my father's job changed, and uh, wow. I went to high school there. And Dad had gone to Canisius College, a Jesuit college in Buffalo. And mm-hmm. so when it became time to look at colleges, he he looked around at Southern Jesuit colleges, and we looked at a couple ones. And he said, "There's one in New Orleans called." Uh, Loyola, and I said, let's go check that out. You yeah, know, I'd never been to New Orleans, and I remember, I still remember driving around with him in, after, before or after the actual college visit, and just it seems so exotic and kind of European to me for someone who hadn't been to Europe at the time. So, yeah. it. Uh, I was I was at Loyola once when I was going to University of Florida for uh, Mardi Gras, and we. When, why was I at Loyola? I'll get to it real quickly. We we couldn't find a place to sleep. We were at Mardi Gras. We just drove over and. And we, we, had, we didn't know where to crash. There was no place to crash. So we found a dorm in, way up in one of the Loyola dorms. And so that about, was you guys. And about, a, about an hour. <laughs> it was us. It was us, right? About an hour we were kicked out, and then we had to <laughs> sleep in the car, which, which we had to keep running the whole time because the, because the starter wasn't working. Yeah. So we had to sleep in a wow. car that was running. Wow. <laughs> keep the windows down. So what, what got you interested in journalism? <sighs> I thought that'd be an easy question. Yeah, no, I, I, I did. I started out as an accounting major, like Dad. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And Dad said, look, it, you could take some accounting classes. And <laughs> it won't hurt. Yeah, right. It's literally not going to hurt you. Yeah. Right. You my, know, my dad, he said, why, don't you, why don't you become a pharmacist? Why? Because he wanted to be a pharmacist. Yeah. Well, uh, I could care less. That's what yeah. you, that's what you do study sometimes chemistry and, as parents. Yeah. Yeah. So you took some accounting classes. I did. And... Uh, and I didn't think that was for me. And I took a journalism class, and it had this brilliant teacher, Father Ray Schroth, who is now uh, here in New York. Uh-huh. Um, he assigned the best journalism for someone like me, for any of us to read. But I, he introduced me to Gay Talese as a writer. Mm-hmm. And specifically, Frank Sinatra has a cold, which th- that... It, it's a cliche to say, but that article... That is the best changed. Bi- uh, biography of Frank Sinatra. It is. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's short and tight, and, yeah. and it's, it's perfect. And I did not know... I used to carry the Buffalo News. I was a, a paper boy for a year. And I'd glance at it and, and be bored. I was 13 years old. I didn't know you could write like that in a, in a nonfiction <laughs> you were way. you allowed to. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I said, I'd like to do this. And I... I um, became editor of the campus paper, the Loyola Maroon, for a year, and graduated and was lucky to be hired by the Montgomery Advertiser in Montgomery, Alabama. So wait, what was your favorite thing you wrote, favorite story you wrote for, for the, the for college? Loyola Maroon. This is not a color. This is mean isolated. <laughs> it's spelled like the color. Oh. Or, it's, wait, it's all the same word. Maroon. Is it? Yeah. It's, it, it is. The, but it's it's a it's a soldier or something, right? Or, That's a marine. No, no, no the, the, a the maroon. Loyola color is maroon, oh. so it ah. must be yeah. The color. Yeah. Because I felt maroon. I never gave it much thought. Uh, yeah. Loyola. You're marooned. Hey, read this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah might as well. 
<laughs> That's an advertisement for you. Yeah. What was your favorite story? Uh, I wrote a story about a sick little girl. Um, a, her mother worked, uh, this is going back some time, but her mother worked at the school and we heard about her sick daughter who spent a lot of time in hospitals awaiting a transplant, hmm. which she ultimately got. Um, and I remember my first sentence. She doesn't know what a doctor is, but she screams at the sight of a white coat. There wow. You go. Wow. wow. Yeah. You asked, that's what came to mind. Becky that's is doing great. a lesson now in her um, elementary school class. Yes, tomorrow morning. On first lines. Uh, you can tell a lot first from a first of, line. First lines of a story, short story. That's or... the most important. Mm -hmm. And that the crime scene, that was the calling card. You, I'm presenting you, the reader, with something you don't have to read. This is not a story about a breaking development in Washington, D.C. or mm -hmm. out of the mayor's office. This is, you, you can live your life not having read this. So I'm going to make you read it by making you interested very quickly. That was right. my goal every single week. Did it always work? I don't know. But that was always the mindset. It sounds like you were writing this column from in college, in a sense. Or that's how you, I mean, Gay Talese approach to... You know, what's going on underneath all this? Yeah, oh, that's nice, yeah. I got to meet him. A, a friend, Pete wow. Corey, an editor at the paper, is, is cl close to him. Wow. And he arranged a dinner uh, one night, and sit, I got to sit next to Gay Talese, and I was starstruck the whole time. And I told him towards the end of the evening, you know, Frank Sinatra has a cold. And you could see his eyes kind of glaze over. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Should have picked a different one. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, oh. that's, that, that is wonderful. How did you get the job at the Times? I, I, truthfully, I think luck. A, a little window opened um, after 9-11, and I got sucked in through that window. I was at the Oregonian in Portland, Oregon, um, and some editors at the Times had become aware of my work and, and, and liked it and flew me out for an interview, and that went well. And uh, they hired a handful of people in 2002, and I was one of them. Wow, and you're still, you're still there. Still there. Right. Still there. And still, still writing. Do you, do, you, do you miss not writing the crime scene? Sometimes I miss the, the kind of urgency personally of this, you know, kind of gun to your head every week. I mean, you I, I hated to miss it. There were, you know, I, I was blessed to have a couple of children along the way, and of course they were, you know, let me have some time off. But I, I kept a pretty rigid, not wanting to miss it schedule. Um, so now, you know, the the, the flip side, it, working on a longer, in-depth thing is a is a wonderful, wonderful gift um, at the paper and in just this this profession. The flip side is you don't get that kind of payback you, you don't get the the feedback as often and, and the the joy of seeing something you've done kind of get in the paper so right. let's 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 bite into the bagel so to ah. speak. I'm, I'm looking at the story now that that we both have in front of us that's not the burglar growling it's his stomach and um you you, you said you said you'd read the first part of that you want to do a setup or you just want to read it this, this comes from... Uh, I'll do a quick setup. March 20, 2017. This was maybe the penultimate column. I mean, not just by accident. We said no, that. it is. Oh, or, it is, Or, yeah. or, or yeah. close to it. Yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the third to the end. Um, my editor, Wendell Jameson, had for years jokingly said, when are you going to write a story about people who 
come home to find their apartment has been burglarized and the burglar also <laughs> ate their food. This is something I think it that it happened to him or a friend of his. I'm sure if it happens to you, it's kind of really scary. Yeah, but it's, saying a, it's just it, an it's added. Funny. It's an added, you know, violation, right? You open, yeah. you're like, oh man, all my stuff's gone, and you open the fridge, and up, oh, so is my beer. Yeah, you know? so. I mean, if they wore my underwear, maybe that would be. Worse. <laughs> oh gosh, you always go there. Wow, it's, that, yeah, the, the column that got away. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so this one begins. The Office of Chief Medical Examiner, which operates New York City's DNA laboratory, tests all manner of objects for microscopic evidence that could link a suspect to a crime. This is a story about a small and bizarre subset of those objects, evidence left by criminals feeding that most basic of human appetites. Literally feeding. Criminals who eat in the act. Partially eaten apple, said a spokeswoman for the medical examiner's office. She wrote when she was asked for examples. Sunflower seed shells, half-eaten chocolate cake, chewed gum. When she got to half-eaten biscuit, the list was not yet half over. Chicken bones, chicken wing, pizza crust, fruit pit. <laughs> and, and, and the, and the, uh, um, the um, investigators uh, could actually pull DNA from this. Yes, yes. So and what... Over the years, literally years, I would be on the telephone with a detective uh, uh, interviewing him about uh, whatever I was writing at the time, the, a burglary or, a, or even a homicide. And towards the end of the interview, if I was thinking about it, I would say, you know what, before we hang up, here's a random weird question, but have you ever had a thing where they stole stuff and ate? And Eight times out of ten, like, no, you, no, you kind of hear about that, but no, I've never had that. But those two times out of ten, like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can think of one. They went in this woman's house, cleaned her out, da, da, da. Or, and left a mess. I mean, you tell yeah, a story right. about a woman. Yeah. And, and they had parties there, and they cleaned. They so these quotes, these detectives are the fruit of, like, years of extremely infrequent labor on oh, this topic. So it's not a, that common after all, just... Uniquely, I, what was not common was me asking. I, you know, like it's not like I asked after every interview. Oh, okay. okay. There must be so many of these these stories. I, I I I deign to call them human interest stories, but they are. They are because it's interesting things about humans, which we're all interested in. Uh, they must be out there, and it takes the imaginative mind of a Mike Wilson or someone like you to say that that that's a story. I, I need to find it. I know there's a story there. It's. Uh, it's like, it's like the figurine inside the uh, the marble. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's dealing with um, police officers. They will, they'll have a case that they think, it's just another case. And they'll kind of mention something about it and say, what? That's crazy, you know? And it's a, it's actually a great story. Yep, yep. Wow. Let's, let's move on to another one. I, I, Wait, I brought a, I, I'm yeah, stuck. On. I'm stuck on this. All right, go ahead. This thought that you just suggested. There are people that murder other people and then have a bite to eat? No, no. Um, I would be writing about some murder. Uh-huh. And I would say, by the way, like in closing, by the way, have you ever had a case? Oh, not, I see, not this I see, one. I see. Not this okay. one, yeah. Um, so, title. In Brooklyn, police find toppled tombstones, but no crime. By Michael Wilson, March 12, 2017. Now, this is right close to your... March 20th, 2017. Right. I just saw it there when I was going through it, and I went toppled tombstones. 
How can you make a story out of that? They happen all the time. But I you, spent a lot a of time on this. in a cemetery where I have no family. I will say that. Um, in the Washington well, Cemetery in Brooklyn. Yes, this got some attention in the Brooklyn papers. Um, and my interest was why it got attention, because immediately this is a very Jewish neighborhood, and it was seen as anti-Semitic. Right. It was anti-Jewish. And it turned out to be entirely something else. Right. I mean, if you remember, because <laughs> Mike is looking through his writing, <laughs> searching for the answer to the question he was just well, asked. I remember it being more open-ended. It's, in fact, the last line is, we'll never know for sure. Right. But, yeah, it... Uh, but all these tombstones were toppled yes, over. Yes, and it seemed quite organized, uh, uh, you know, from a short distance. Um, on the other side of the fence, if you're peering into the cemetery, it looked like, you know, some... Uh, Someone might have come in and decided to knock over six tombstones in a row. Yeah, when in fact they, they actually had been knocked over a long yeah. time so ago. Yeah, so I'm no, I'm not. Someone like just noticed it. Exactly, I'm not yeah. Mr. CSI, but yeah. I was kind of proud because I went in the cemetery and examined, and you could see like weeds growing through the crack between the, what's left standing and what's on the ground. So obviously, in a way it's been there, it's for, been a there for a long time. Yeah. yeah. So what what was new was someone kind of noticing it and and. Um, becoming alarmed right. by it. What I find wonderful about this is that, you know, I would think a lot of writers would look at this and say, there's no story here. There's, there's nothing here. But there is. And it's subtle. But it's like, I, I enjoyed it because it had, it had the community, the, the, uh, the Jewish community was involved. The police were involved. There was that, you know, that need for the politician to show up. Right. Because, you know, they need to show up at, at all these things. And, um, and then the investigators doing their professional job Looking at it closely and coming up with a, exactly. you know, with a decision, and um, so it's not like like you know, the hitch in the stomach kind of thing, but it's it is who we are, you know? right? You well, know? And, well, and, and they've been they've been knocked over for maybe months, it, maybe years, maybe, yeah, maybe longer, yeah. Right. There's some very very old stones there, and the ground around them is so not flat, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. So. And and then you make the note that there's a, a truck that drives through there. Right. 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 Um, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of things we can talk about, and I urge our listeners, Bar Pro Radio, here at Gephards, um, to uh, go take a look at Mike Wilson's uh, uh, crime scene. But I want to talk about one more, and this is deals with some danger that you seem to be in, and you told us earlier that um, your parents were kind of upset at you that you went and, and, and looked up this story. This one's called Not Far From the Pharmacy, A Different Sort of Drug Deal. Yes. It is really strange. I'd never heard of this before. This was a conversation. This was born of a conversation I had very new to this column, and I was calling and introducing myself. Right. This is back in May 6, 2011. So it's about a month old. This is number maybe four. Right. so you, you were out there. You wanted to make a, a, a point here. Yeah. And, and so I you met, put I, yourself I, I in danger. I would go to these... Uh, precinct community council meetings, which are wonderful places to learn what's going on because uh, people show up at these meetings and they have access to the commanding officer of the precinct and they, they sort of raise their hand and say, hey, what are you going to do about this and this and this? I heard about, you know, there's a guy smoking crack in our stairwell. He just, we can't get rid of him. What can you do? That's like very, very hyper-local, specific things, which is exactly what I was after, as, as you can tell in hindsight. Yep. So I was speaking to Michael Moat Wynn, who uh, was the president of the 33rd Precinct Community Council uptown. And I said, what's going on? And he said, well, we've got this situation on Broadway where 
these young men show up every morning and they approach you if you are carrying prescription medicine. And you, they, if they you come out of the drugstore. Exactly. You see you so coming you, out of the drugstore, with CVS With your whatever. little CVS bag. And they will approach you in hopes of buying your medicine from you and then reselling it. And they're particularly for a Percocet right. and Oxycodone, that kind of stuff. Of course. Yeah. Oh, right, so oh, there's the police doing their job. Yep. They, found, they found me. Yeah. Oh. No, no. Put the your head down. The crime's not here. The crime's not all here. All right, all right. They don't see you. Okay. So, it, this the the l- complete lack of subtlety, the directness of it all. Yeah. And I went, and I said, how am I going to see what's going on here? So I watched, and you could see these guys standing around and maybe perhaps talk to someone passing by every now and then. Yeah, instead of saying, you know, I, I got some good stuff here, or whatever they say, they say they're this asking the other the question, way around. Yeah, yeah, what do you got? What do you got that I can buy? <clears throat> As, as someone said in the, in the piece, like these guys show up at 9.30 or 10 in the morning and step out with a cup of coffee and a donut like they're going to a real job. <laughs> yeah, can, can I just read a real uh, quote? I was, I was going to, it's at the bottom of it, maybe. It says, in a not-too-distant past, this was the battleground of a drug siege led by the so-called Jerry Curl Gang for the product <laughs> that's shown in their hair and the wild cowboys who occupied entire buildings and sold packages of crack so recognizable that they were practically trademarked. I like that. <laughs> I could see that. Well, thank the, you. The, the gangs protected their corners with guns, and dozens were convicted of murders in Manhattan courts in the 1990s. By comparison, the guys on Broadway are like Girl Scouts hitting you up to buy Thin Mints. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is funny. Yeah. Well, uh, so I approached them. I approached a guy... And there was a bit of a language barrier. Uh, his English and my Spanish uh, sort of met in a not, gr- not particularly fruitful way. And I had said something about buying drugs. And he said, come here, come here, come here. And he ushered me around the corner into a little like alleyway yeah. with some scaffolding around it. And he said, sit down. And it set well off the sidewalk. It, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. Away from civilization. In the blink of an eye, there were several men around him. And I, was, I found myself you know, feeling a bit boxed in. Now, no one, no one uh, physically threatened me, but it was an, an uncomfortable minute or so. As they I, meant it to feel that way, yeah, for sure. Yeah. They, I think that they misunderstood that I had something to sell them. And in fact, I just had questions to ask them mm-hmm. that they were, had no interest in answering. And uh, it all ended pretty quickly. But, uh, yeah, so he said, like, I asked him about the pills, and he said, I thought you had pills. And he said it with exasperation, and off, off I went. Yeah, and you got out, and your parents they cleaned said, how that dare up. you? That, 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 yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, they cleaned that up, I understand. That area? Yeah. Yeah. That, that situation. That, that and I have all these drugs. I, I was, yeah, I right. Was, I, I was going to yeah. ask you no. where to no. go. <laughs> Michael Wilson, I mean, I have so many other questions. Can you come back on Bar Crow Radio? I'd be happy to. Because I want to know what life is like at the Times. Um, I've been there. I've seen the newsroom and all. And I want to have a more in depth I don't want to start asking you questions about it because I know. Well, I'll say this. I don't know when you were there, but in the last. In the new building. Yes. Yeah. But in the last few months, things have changed drastically where um, we moved out of some upper floors of the building and collapsed and and. and Condensed. Shrunk everyone's desk, condensed, and now the newsroom is 
I don't know, more, more than twice as crowded with desks and people. Well, and, 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 and upstairs, it's like corporate now, or? I'm not sure. There are floors that I, uh, you know, I'm just a grunt reporter. I, I'm welcome on three, and 14 is the cafeteria. That's, so that's your card allows you there. No, I, I mean, I, I can, yeah, I joke, but yeah. that's about the only no, place I have any business there. going. No, but there's a lot of security yeah, yeah. I mean, I right. brought my classes. There's a bunch of security yeah. going there. The newsroom, I think, resembles um, these 1940s movies newsrooms now. Does it? Just minus, like, the, the smoke. <laughs> <Thank> Maybe <laughs> we'll bring that back. Yeah, but, yeah um, a little smoke machine. I was going to yeah. say, right. thank no one smokes anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a smoke machine. <laughs> yes, very Alina, low. If you're, the, the, if you're going to ask a question, you've got to get on mic. Yeah, come here. Okay. There's no cubicles really anymore. It's it's, uh, oh, it's just little desks that we're we're all kind of lined up in a row with a little divider between us all, and it's yeah. you know there's a lot you can hear more people talking around you and, and the typing and people buzzing around and you know an editor will go running past. To Do you have any idea what the purpose was to to? Uh, I think it was driven by uh, yeah real estate like we we can because okay. um, yeah, you have a really important building there yeah exactly not, so, not just let's stir it up make sure you know let's, maybe they'll write faster or something no 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 people were writing pretty fast it, yeah. it was more of a, a, a consolidation thing ah uh, right. uh. Michael Wilson thank you so much for joining us here on Bar Crawl Radio yes. it's, thank it's you been a hoot. I, I was going to ask you what you're drinking thanks for the beer it was the it's one I've not had before, but I'll have again next time you have me. The Lord Hobo Pale Ale. Lord Hobo. Yep. It's Lord really Hobo. good. And Michael Wilson will be back to drink more beer here at Barcrow Radio at Gephardt. We're going to follow West, him, and we're going to call him up and say, hey, Street. come talk about that article <laughs> you just wrote. We can get a tour of the New York Times. There you go. Um, Michael Wilson wrote The Crime Scene from uh, 2011 to 2017. If you have not read it, it is an archive available on the New York Times, or you can just... Google it, and I was able to find all 300 of them. Find a title that looks interesting. I think that you're going to find them all interesting. And I want to thank um, Michael Wilson again for joining us, and uh, come back to Bar Crawl Radio anytime. Thank you. Will do. I Thanks have- a lot. This is Bar Crawl Radio. We're broadcasting from Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, right across the street from the mortuary and down the road from Trader Joe's. We'll be right back with uh, an interview of Alexandria Mar- Marzano, Marzano Lesnovich. Lesnovich. Right. Or Lesnovic. I, I understand. I, I, I get her book more than her name. I just haven't got the name. And she wrote a, um, a really fascinating book called The Fact of a Body. And we'll be talking to her soon. And we'll be right back. This is Barcore Radio on iTunes and Stitcher, and uh, that's it. We'll be well, right back. Well, Facebook. Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Right. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. In the second act of Bar Crawl Radio number 13, we spoke with Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich, author of The Fact of a Body. As I read her memoir about child murder, pedophilia, family memories, my emotional gut was pummeled several times. Alexandria read for over two and a half minutes from her novel, and so we're obliged to read this legal disclaimer. All right, here goes. This work is not authorized or approved by the Louisiana Capital Assistance Center or its clients, and the views expressed by the author do not reflect the views or positions of anyone other than the author. 
the author's description of any legal proceedings, including her description of the positions of the parties and the circumstances and events of the crimes charged, are drawn solely from the court record, other publicly available information, and her own research, period. Okay, there it is. God, I feel so grown up. We begin the conversation with the author reading from her novel. The boy wears sweatpants the color of a Louisiana lake. Later, the police report will note them as blue, though in every description his mother gives thereafter, she will always insist on calling them aqua or teal. On his feet are the muddy hiking boots every boy wears in this part of the state, perfect for playing in the woods. In one small fist, he grips a BB gun half as tall as he is. The BB gun is the daisy brand, with a long brown plastic barrel the boy keeps as shiny as if it were real metal. We have with us Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich. She's the author of The Fact of a Body, a Murder and a Memoir. The book was named one of the best books of the year by Entertainment Weekly, Audible.com, Bustle, Book Riot, The Times of London, and The Guardian. Published in 2017, The Fact of a Body won just recently the Chautauqua Prize and was a finalist for numerous awards, including a Good Goodreads Choice Award and a Lambda Literary Award. Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich is a 2014 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow in Creative Writing, an award given for her work on the fact of a body. She has a long list of accolades, including a Rona Jaffe Award. She has written for the New York Times, is a Juris Doctor from Harvard, and Alexandria has taught at Harvard and in the fall will become a professor at Bowdoin College. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. And now I'm just going to tell you how beautiful this book is. I am just blown away. It's so beautifully written, so kindly written. Thank you. Why did you want to write it? Oh, I didn't have a choice. (laughs) (laughs) I tried really hard to write anything else first. Uh, Um, No, I had enrolled in grad school for fiction, actually. And um, what happened was that as I was writing fiction, um, and this was after law school, some of the details of this murder would come back and sort of haunt the fiction that I wrote. So, for example, there's a really pivotal BB gun, or pivotal to me anyway, that comes up in the first chapter and comes back at the end of the book. And that BB gun kept showing up in short stories that I was writing. Or the color blue which was a blanket, the blanket color that the murderer had wrapped, Murray had wrapped the child, Dora McGillary's body in, that color blue would show up in these stories. And whenever that happened, I would think, oh, that's the case of, but Ricky Langley's name was gone. And in those years, I could and did um, literally, you know, call up information about the case online, and I would read about it. And then the second I stepped away, I could remember everything else about the murder. But I could not remember his name. Except his name, and wow. it's in the novel. That's in the book, and so I realized, right? I realized that was weird. <laughs> um, mm. And there's only really other, one other such moment in my life where I remember everything else. But there's this perfect little pinprick around a moment, and that pertained to my grandfather. And so I realized that these were related. And when I originally got the first set of records, I ultimately wrote this book off of 30,000 pages of court records. Um, but I got the initial set of 8,000. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't trying to write about it. I actually wanted to put it down. I actually wanted to not think about it anymore. 
Um, and as you can tell from the fact that, you know, now many years later there's a book, uh, that is not what happened. Right, okay. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I think we need to have, that, that was a good prologue. What we need is a kind of little summary of what this is about. Many people have not read The Fact of a Body. Can, can you describe it? It's, I, I would have a very difficult time <laughs> I think it's a very unique book, it. too. I don't know that I've ever read anything where it's a combination of this, you know, investigation um, of, of a crime as well as a memoir. And exposure and of self. And how they dovetail. Yes. I, I how would you describe this in... So, I mean, this, this is a great question, and I'll tell you, I did a book club last night, a book club visit, I love doing book clubs, and, uh, you know, they asked me, well, where is it shelved in the bookstore? And I was like, oh, it's in a different place in every bookstore. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, uh -huh. So, I'd usually describe it as half memoir, half true crime. I think that's approximately accurate, but really it's about the way we make stories out of the past. Um, my publisher likes to describe it as an intellectual and emotional thriller, um, which I think is... Roughly right. Um, mm -hmm. I like that. Um, but really, it's an investigation into this case that I just, I could not stop thinking about. And it's also an investigation into my own past. In the beginning of the book, you give the, um, your readers a little tutorial in a, a, a point of law, which I think must have something very much important to do with the book. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit and tell our readers what that is? Um, the sure. prox is it prox proximate cause. Proximate yeah. Cause. So what's interesting about proximate cause is that there is no idea of proximate cause in criminal law. Hmm. So um, I'm glad that so many people seem to like the opening. I'll tell you, when I turned in the book to my publisher, I was like, there's no way they're going to let me get away with this. Um, but what I do is I open the book with a court case you know, from um, quite a number of decades ago. And I kind of take the reader through this, this moment when this crash happens, or um, rather, I guess not a crash, when, when something happens that a woman is injured. Let's leave it at that. Okay. And um, someone drops these fireworks, and um, something falls on a train station, and she's injured. Although the nature of the injury, as I say later in the book, um, is a point of dispute. And this is almost a parable, Palsgraf um, versus Long Island Railroad, that is taught to all law students to illustrate the question of, when you have all these different potential causes, how do you understand what caused something? How do you understand cause, really? And it's, a, it's an idea that comes up in tort law or negligence, um, but it's actually not something that we care about in criminal law. We don't care about what caused it. We don't care about where uh, the story began. Right. And yet, it's, I think in life we do. We care deeply we do. about where the story began. And so that was kind of why I put it at the start. I also wanted to kind of cue the reader that this would be a very unusual sort of book, that we would take court records and we would kind of, you know, together, the reader and I, would imagine the people who were behind them. So it sort of begins with, you know, picture her standing there on the platform and let me tell you a story about her. Do you um, really do have a sympathetic way of portraying the people in your book And I especially did enjoy how you would portray the characters who had done horrible things when Alcide um, was driving the car. Do we want to say who that is? Yeah, we have to say who um, it is. So Alcide was uh, Ricky Langley's father. Um, Langley was the man who committed the murder. Um, in the center of the book, I go back in time. So I go back to before um, the murder of Ricky Langley was born. And... I don't know where exactly you're going to read from, but I'm assuming it's before he was born and Alcide was driving the family. Alcide was driving the family car. And, I mean, he's 
you, he's described in your book as an alcoholic, that he's very angry, he may have beaten his son, um, but yet you give him the benefit of the doubt in, the, in, in terms of this, um, this accident. And I, 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 I get that no one maybe knows the truth. Right, and it's not even consistent that, that people would describe him as an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the point. You know, Didion says, Joan Didion says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, we tell ourselves stories all the time. We constantly narrate our lives. And I wanted to highlight the different ways that you can tell the story of this crush that really turned out to be, I would say, the pivotal moment in his family's history. Right, right. Can, can I just put in, I, I think that's really an important, a really important part, because we all tell ourselves stories. Some of us know their stories and kind of investigate the story, and we are, we're able to change the story as we learn things, like you do, and constantly be aware of that. But so many of us think that's the truth. Mm. And in fact, it's just a story. It's a story. It's a yeah. story, right. And I think a lot of the problems we have in this country is based on the fact that the, that, that, that we need to accept that what we tell ourselves are stories, and there are some better than others. That's, a, that's literally what I teach about in the um, graduate mm-hmm. public policy program at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And it was a, sort of an unusual idea prior to the election in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then post-election, most people seem to be on the same page that, yes, we are nationally kind of constantly telling ourselves stories. Um, in this book, I was really interested in this question of... You know, when we think about the law, sometimes people still think of a trial as a fact-finding mechanism, a truth-finding mechanism. We're going to throw things in on either side and out of this truth will emerge. And it's not. It's a story-making mechanism. Right. It produces an authored story. And I I will say, we also do that in families. We tell ourselves a story about the past. Yes. And everyone in a family often has a different story about the past that they're operating on. Right, right, right. Every family. My daughter has a revisionist uh, history. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it's her story. I know. Yeah. I know. I said, no, we, I never did that or whatever, you know. And, but probably she's right. <laughs> she's probably right. In 1964, it is 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and Alcide sweats in the sun. There is no air conditioning, and the air outside the rolled-down windows blows as hot as a heater. Under the windshield, the sun's heat must concentrate and beat down on Alcide. The children need food. The children need clothing. The children need. He cannot give the children what they need. Maybe now that sweat stings his eyes, and he reaches one hand up to wipe the sweat away, and this, just this instant, when his hand cups his eyes, when his eyes are not on the road, and his hand is not on the wheel, maybe this is how it happens. Yeah. It goes on just that, that you present it in a way that, because we don't know, you're telling, you're saying, well, reader, imagine it this way, maybe. Or maybe it is that way. Imagine it's it just, this way, yeah. yeah. And it goes on to say that, you know, because he's about to lose so much, I need to find a kinder way to tell the story. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. is it, is it okay to give it away? Because he loses. I mean, it's, it's, it's gruesome and awful what, know, what he not, loses. I'm and not a big fan of giving away the story too okay. much, but it's up. It's yeah, go, really, go, go it's read really it. up to you. Uh, yeah. Something very gothic happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it leads to and grotesque too gothic and grotesque and it leads to a chain of events that I will tell you is why I wrote most of this book sipping from a coffee mug that says creative nonfiction because mm. you can't make this stuff up right because some of the details are larger than life and yeah. that coffee cup yeah. existed throughout the writing of this uh, it did it did it's it's for the creative nonfiction foundation and I had gotten it um 
really early on before I even really started this book. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, oh, this is perfect. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So yeah. I want to talk about your personal life too, not, you know, to about what you portrayed in your book. You said you had to write the book. Yeah. How did you feel as you were writing it? Oh, you know, funny thing happens when you go to cocktail parties when you're writing a memoir. <laughs> is first everyone says, I'm going to write a memoir too, just this minute I have time. Yeah, right, <laughs> right? exactly. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to become an electric engineer too, the minute I have time. No brain surgeon. Um, right. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that they say constantly is you're writing a memoir. That must be so therapeutic. Hmm. And I always wanted to, and I didn't because I'm too polite for this, but I always wanted to say, not if you're doing it right. Like, if you're doing it right, you're constantly dredging up the past. I teach a memoir, I have taught memoir in the past, and, it, and you see, it's difficult for people. It, it, it requires you to dig this stuff up. So during the time I was writing it, it was actually, it quite haunted me, really haunted me. Both the stuff from my own life and also, you know, what I was reading in these 30,000 pages of court records and what I was trying to bring to life on the page. Um, and yet, you know, imagine my surprise when the first set of hardcovers was delivered to my house. And I held the book for the first time. And I must start crying because I realized, oh, but this was therapeutic. Uh-huh. Holding a place Holding where the, the past book. lived. Ah. Because I had, what I had done without even realizing it was I kind of made a place for all these untold stories to live. Having written. Having written. Was it yeah. therapeutic for your family? Because they're involved oh, in this too. I'm not sure I can answer that question because that's, I think, their question. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, no one in a family chooses to have their kid write a memoir. <laughs> I'm not sure that anyone would choose to have their kid write a memoir. Um, your, mo- your mother in the book actually yeah. responds to this. She does. Yeah. She does. And she sort of I don't know if it's the right to say it gives you permission or says this is a good thing I'm finally the secrets are out she says that you know I can't, I can't even remember if this is the moment you're referring to but she did say in life um, you know the story has been ours for so long it's yours to tell that's now. it that's yeah. it yeah. yeah it's funny the way when you finally finish a book that you've been working on for years your brain just like shoves it out um, so I'm, I'm working sure. on, this, this, on the next book now and it's like my brain is all full of that it's uh-huh. not full of this anymore which is so weird um, yeah, I mean, my mother was at my paperback launch last, uh, two weeks ago, um, which is really lovely. Is your father um, still around? Well, my dad's around. Everybody's yeah. around. Everybody's read the book. I mean, I think it's, uh, as with any family, it's complicated and there's love and it's complicated and there's love right. and it's complicated and there's love. It doesn't actually change the way you relate to your family. It just yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Yes. Like, I, I don't know imagine. if you're going to ask this. Can I ask a go question? Ahead, go that ahead, kind of is a follow-up on go this. You, you also visited the, um, the 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 guy who did the murder, the murderer. I did. And the, if I can say the word, uh, the pedophile. Mm-hmm. Um, you you visit him and towards the end of the book. I don't know if we want to give it away, but do you stay in contact with Ricky Langley? Or? I have not stayed in contact with him. No. And you have any idea what's going on with him? Funny you prison. should say that. I mean. Uh, Last week, his third conviction was overturned. Oh. So not o- not over a dispute that he had committed the, um, the that he had killed Ricky. I'm going to phrase this really carefully. Not over a dispute that he had killed Jeremy Guillory. That is clear. Right. Um, but out of a dispute over the way the prosecution argued the case for in the third trial. So there's actually going to be a fourth trial. Wow. Um, 
unknown, unknown when, as this obviously all just happened, he's currently being held without bail. Well, but, but he's not under threat of de the death penalty. No, and he never will be. After that second trial, um, when the jury gave him life, so the jury gave him a death sentence in the first trial, and in the second trial, the jury gave him life. Um, and uh, after that, you no longer try for the, you, you can't try someone um, under the threat of a death penalty. I've, I've, I've got to ask you this because it's like, I'm, 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 the tears come up when I think of it. And it's the end of the book, and don't give it away, but did you really go see him? Of course. Wow. It's a nonfiction book. Yeah. Everything in this book happened. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It, that, there's so many times in this book that my breath was taken away, and I had to just stop. I just couldn't read. I couldn't go any further. I got, oh, okay, wait a second. But the, the, you know. the, yeah. the, 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 I keep going back to the great thing about the way you've written it. You've written it, it reads like a fiction. Thank you. It reads like a novel, like a, you know, from your imagination. And, for example, this chapter 9, if you would read that, um, it's page 61. Louisiana, 1992. Lorelai is the one who leads the police to Ricky Langley, finally. Early Monday morning, her son's still missing. The sheriff calls her up at Melissa's house and asks her to come down to the station for questioning. He's kind, but firm. They need her to take a lie detector test. Let's put her in a small room at the police station for this. From the ceiling hangs an overhead cone light like the one my parents had in their kitchen while I was growing up. The cone light that's in every interrogation scene in the movies and that must hover over Ricky Langley when he finally gives his videotaped confession. Lorelai's not a suspect. No, ma'am, we're not suggesting anything, the taller, burlier cop keeps saying to her. But the truth is, they don't have any suspects. Not yet. Just the way you say, let's, let's put her in a small room at the police station for this. It's just wonderful. I mean, I, I, I read all about, I read, you know, your, your prologue, read how, you know, you, you, everything is based on the research that you've done on transcripts, on interviews, on, you know, all these, you have it very well, you know, factually supported. And so, and yet, because we really don't know exactly what happened, no one has, can really say exactly, it makes sense, perfect sense, but not just to say, you know, well, she was probably in a room. You say, let's put her in a small room. <laughs> you're, it, it's a conversation, well, a book is a conversation with the reader anyway, but you're, you've established a very intimate conversation. And then that, that cone light comes back later because we actually go into your mother's we kitchen. We do, we go into and, that and, kitchen. And, and, and that, that, that then takes you back to the beginning of the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what this thing kept happening when I was reading the records, and, and thank you both for, for noticing that intimacy. Um, this thing kept happening when I was reading the records is that they didn't feel flat to me. What, they sort of hit me with the force of memory or with the force of a dream. You know, when you see a scene unfold in front of you. And what I really wanted with this book was to capture that sense for the reader. Um, because after all, you know, this is part of why it's written in present tense. Because after all, memory is never really in past tense. Memory is always in present tense. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I wanted the, the scenes from his life to have the immediacy and the sensory detail for the reader that they did when they unfolded in my imagination as I read the records, but also uh -huh. um, the same immediacy that my own life had for me. Right. Has for me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So another part of your story is about your own life. 
and about how your grandfather molested you numerous times. I can't imagine writing about that. And there's a passage of the book I wanted to ask you to read where you are hearing him come up the stairs. This is actually before we know he is a pedophile. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The staircase was so loud I could hear its creaks from the back of the house in the room I shared with Nicola. Listening, I pictured my grandfather as he climbed, the way he had to turn his back to the wall of photographs, grip the banister with both hands, and side-shuffle up. How his thick fingers gripped the wood, then the angina that pressed his mouth into a grim line of surprise, his fingers tightening and his arms locked as he breathed into the pain. If he could just bear this one attack, it might be the last. He endures the fact of his old age the same way, by bracing against time's press, always seeming to have hope that someday he will be returned to himself as a young man with all possibilities ahead. I noticed you also wrote in your book about um, how that at one point in your life um, people couldn't, and maybe still so, people, you don't like to be surprised by any kind of touch or movement. Like it, It's just, to me, that really resonates that you still live and will probably will always live with this distinct hatred of yellow and you know all the things that uh, you were gifted with with that yeah it's a strange thing things live inside your body i will say that i was um fortunate enough to have a friend who decided to make it her mission to make me comfortable with surprise touch and so um Mm. she would like attack hug me she would call me this we were kids and uh she like got elbowed way too many times to couch (laughs) for a friend karen is her name um uh, but she, she did cure me of that, ultimately. Um, and it's strange that, you know, I've heard from so many people who've been through similar experiences since this book came out. The first four months, I got between one and three emails a day. And that's just the email. That's just the email contact. That doesn't count people in you know, real life. And those are just the emails in which people were saying, I went through abuse too, and we didn't talk about it in my family either. Um, and I think what happens is that the memories live inside you nonetheless the body yes. you know the body holds on to it um in the, the fact words, of a body the fact of a body and i wanted to sort of you know one of the reasons that became the title was because i wanted to highlight the way that i can tell this story in many ways but i'll always have the things my body holds and i can tell the story of ricky langley and jeremy guillory many ways but i come back at the end of it to the fact of jeremy guillory's body um that, that duality i wanted to sort of highlight for the reader um it doesn't stay the same i will say you know i've been surprised um at how much just having written this book has changed my own relationship to it all where it sort of now seems to live in the book and not in my body i never thought that would happen that's amazing so what's what's therapeutic yeah to my shock it turned Mm -hmm. out to be therapeutic um Mm -hmm. the actual writing of it not so much um but the having written uh turned out to be deeply so because it's, it's in this other object now. It doesn't have to live inside my body. Well, that's amazing. It's become kind of a totem that's carrying your... Yes, yes. And the records were the totem for the longest time. I mean, yeah. I, I keep the records in a separate workspace in Boston. I don't allow them in my house. Because they're, when they're in my house, I still feel haunted by them. I still I can't like, go to sleep with the records in my house. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I decided to include uh, 
kind of that moment in the book where um, they shipped some of the records to my house That's and I was right. like, I can't, no, yeah. <laughs> these yeah. have to go. So many yeah. great moments. Wow, wow. That's all the questions that I, I um, that That's wonderful. Um, we've been speaking with Alexandra Marzano-Lesnevich who wrote a um, book called The Fact of a Body. It's more than a book, it's a memoir, it's a novel, it's about murder and pedophilia and um, growing up and... Um, and about the author becoming better over the process. Um, hope that summary kind of uh, gets, gets to part of it. Um, we here at Bar Crawl Radio, uh, Alina Larson, Rebecca McKean, Alan Winston, we all highly recommend The Fact of a Body. Please read it. Uh, let us know what you think about it. We'll pass it on. Alexandria, it's been so wonderful to have you. I, I, this is why we do this radio show. Uh, we're not making any money on it, but we get to talk to people like you and, and, and who we talked to earlier, with, uh, Mike, Mike Wilson and others, and it's, uh, it's a great experience. Thank you for writing The Fact of a Body. Thank you for being brave enough to do that, and we look forward to your next book. What is your next book? Uh, well, I don't have a title yet, but um, I seem to be obsessed with the question of how we make stories out of the past. Great. And so I've been working on that in Cambodia for the last couple of years, actually. Uh, oh, my goodness. Is it, is it a memoir again? or It is, is it not a memoir, but there, it's, uh, it is another odd genre mashup. It's not Pol Pot or anything. <laughs> no. No, okay. Um, yeah, but thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely lovely. A podcast in a bar turns out to be the ideal location for right. a podcast. And you're, you're drinking so. beer. What, what, what are you drinking? I am drinking the Founders All Day IPA, uh, which is brewed in the town where one of my dearest friends lives. Oh, oh nice. So I that, I'd that's do right. That. They have yeah. an enormous amount of beers here. Yes, well, at it's Gebhardt's a beer culture. Beer culture bar in West forward to that bar crawl radio that's it for now you all have a good evening uh, to another crime reporter really for the post nice so i was just gonna ask you guys if